This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday mornings at 11 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. I do see food as medicine. So it's the same as someone that's eating very, very unhealthy. And you're saying, you know, we've really got to turn your diet around. Even if we try something for a few months, we start introducing healthier things, maybe reducing the amount of sugar. And that's where, you know, when we're talking about diets, where a lot of people really need to modify their diets is reducing sugar. Happy New Year and welcome to the new and improved 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll learn all about the natural treatment of food allergies. Also, we'll hear about the classic cookbooks you should keep and the ones you should switch out of your home collection. Then we'll learn whether the latest fad diets have any legs. And lastly, we'll talk about how to create a fit future you. But first, a little bit of business. Today's sponsor is Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's Unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with that great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try Activated Charcoal and Mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely Natural. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager at Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality and natural products on the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is also an excellent and accessible writer, and today we're going to discuss his article in the January issue of Tonic Magazine all about the natural treatments and modifications regarding food allergies. Welcome to the show. As always, my pleasure, sir. So unfortunately, this is something that I know about firsthand. Uh, My son, Bram, is anaphylactic. The triggering foods being fish and tree nuts and poppy seeds. Trace amounts can set him off. And when that happens, and it has happened, it's a life or death situation, which I think most people don't appreciate. Not until you've seen it you, and, and you lived truly it. Uh, yeah, it. I've had to give him the EpiPen and we've had to rush him to emergency on a couple of occasions, which is really scary. Oh, yeah. So I think the more that everybody knows about food allergies, the better. Definitely. So what is an allergic reaction? How does it come about? Well, allergic reactions are your body's immune system going haywire, right. going completely berserk over something that's fairly minor. Essentially, there's a harmless trigger. In your case, it would be poppy seeds or fish fish and tree nuts, right? Tree nuts that, for example, to myself, my immune system might go, oh, okay, it's there. Right. And just ignore it after that. In your son's case, his immune system just goes insane and just it's fight or flight inside his body. It's trying to expel the irritant, right? It's the body. It is a literal reaction to what the body perceives as a poison Correct. uh, and and tries to- A severe one. Correct. In, in the case of anaphylaxis, it's a severe poison, not just right. garden variety. Okay. And, and in your research, have you come up with statistics about these allergies? 
Yeah. What triggered me to write this, I guess I should go back. What triggered me to write this is that I remember in my 20s that allergies were something you heard about, but there was really no precautions or anything like that. It was rare. I, I remember like there was always one kid who couldn't have peanut butter sandwiches, but that was the end of it. Nobody knew about the other type of food allergies. Yeah. It was very rare. See, and, and with me, I actually still have vivid memories in high school and in junior high, actually taking peanut butter and jam sandwiches to school. Right. I remember that. Now, every year, the first week of school, my son comes home with a list telling me the things that he can't take no matter what. And of course, we honor that. We don't do it. We don't want to have anyone in trouble. And at the same time, also, I look at his principal's office and there's a wall. Uh, Normally, it's about five feet wide by about four feet tall with pictures of children and then underneath listing each one of their allergies. Hmm. And for a small school, there's a huge number of kids. Right. So it's it's now become a reality, and that's what I looked at when I when I started down this. And my prefacing that is most of the statistics we have are around children. Yes, we can extrapolate for adults, but most of the statistics we know of are based on children because that's where we keep the statistics. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, seven percent of Canadians have food allergies. Food allergies in children increased fifty percent between nineteen ninety seven and two thousand and eleven. Between 1997 and 2008, peanut or tree nut allergies more than tripled. Right. And about 30% of children with food allergies are allergic to more than one thing. Yes. And those, those statistics, if this were anything else other than allergies, if this, for example, with heart disease, saying that something tripled in a span of 10 years, this would be a crisis beyond belief. It would be a health epidemic, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Not, nothing in health triples in 10 years. Right. Nothing. Which begs the question, you know, what's happening? Why, why is it occurring, right? And that's a very complex question to answer. Yeah, I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that, right? I mean, they're doing research and, I mean, I have some theories of my own. Let's, let's chat about it. There are some theories with some scientific justification. Right. Not that yours don't have that, but there are some with scientific justification. They call them contributing factors. Right. And what essentially they've done is they've looked at mirrored populations where Almost everything is the same other than this one thing. Mm -hmm. And they've said, okay, if this one thing is different, how does this affect allergies? And they've come up with some interesting data. One is what they call avoiding introduction. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by that is when you and I were of toddler age, for example, peanuts, tree nuts, all those allergens, they were just around the house. We were introduced to them very young. And although we may not have consumed tons of them, we consume them in small amounts, and our body got used to them, per se. Obviously, if we exhibited an allergic reaction, our parents stopped. But if we didn't, we just kept going on with it. But I remember that when when my kids were born, the pediatrician would say, okay, you don't introduce eggs right away. You don't introduce yep. peanuts right away. You don't. Int- so the kids aren't getting them in their system. They're not building up the immunity. Is that, is that where you're Correct. going with that this? Ha- the prevailing thoughts in the 70s and through to probably just a couple of years ago right. were you don't introduce them until a specific age right. and then very slowly. The problem they found is that with many of us, just waiting until that specific age, that trained our immune system not to accept them. Right. They became foreign to us as though they were pathogenic or a poison. And this has done some interesting uh, statistics of that. Of children who avoided peanuts as infants, 17% ended up with peanut allergies, while only 3% of those 
who had had peanuts by age five had allergies. Hmm. So that's five times as much, roughly. It's the old thing about children, for example, being exposed to dirt and eating dirt. Right. If you're exposed to a potential allergen in minute amounts regularly, for most people, when you're children, your body will become accustomed to them. Right. And I say for most because if, God forbid, someone listening to this sees their child doing something and has a reaction, don't ignore it. Right. Of course not. (laughs) And don't reintroduce that immediately. Seek medical attention and treat it properly. But for most of us, that wouldn't be the issue. Okay. What other factors are there that the scientists believe uh, lead to food allergies? Well, another one is microbial imbalance, also known as the microbiome. Mm -hmm. Essentially what that is, is that's the combination of all the species of probiotics and pathogens inside your gut. Mm -hmm. And what they found with people who have allergies, they have far fewer probiotics and far fewer species of probiotics. So their community, for lacking a better phrase, inside their gut has less inhabitants and of the inhabitants in it, less species. And the interesting thing is they found that when they studied identical groups of people with vastly different allergy rates, that just accounting for no other factors, just accounting for microbial diversity in the gut was directly correlated to the number of allergies. Okay. Now, the last of the contributing factors that I found scientific rationale behind, this one didn't expect to see. Sun exposure. Yeah. When I read it in the article, I I thought, hmm, that is curious. They found a direct link between hours of sun exposure and propensity for allergies. So the more sun you get, the more... No, the less sun you get, the higher the amount of allergies. They believe in part it's due to vitamin D. Okay. The amount of vitamin D you have. But at the same time, they haven't discounted that it may just be the sun itself. Right. And it's, it's interesting. They found that lack of exposure to sunlight and consequential vitamin D deficiency can make an infant three times more likely to have an ag allergy and 11 times more likely to have a peanut allergy. Huh. Now, with that knowledge, unfortunately, we live in the Great White North exactly. in Canada. Right. Which means, number one, there is no place in Canada absolutely no place where other than about two to three weeks of the year, you can get enough sunlight, (laughs) (laughs) which kind of blows. Yep. Making that even worse is the fact that when it is sunny in the winter, what do we do? We have to wrap ourselves up, put on toques, put on gloves, wear heavy parkas, which are nice and warm, Yes. but our bodies don't see any sun. Right. And then we go indoors. Right. But do we supplement for small infants? Can we do that? Oh, yes. You can supplement from birth on. Vitamin D actually is one of the most intriguing supplements for that in the fact that, A, it's remarkably inexpensive. Okay. Even the best one on the market, the most expensive one, you're still under a dime a day. Wow. Okay. It's really inexpensive. Secondly, the amount you have to take therapeutically is very well known Mm -hmm. and very easy to dose. My chosen preference for vitamin D is I do vegan vitamin D drops in oil, Mm -hmm. and they come in two different strengths. One strength is 400 IU per drop, which is ideal for infants all the way up to teenagers. Mm -hmm. And then 1,000 IU per drop, 
for the adult version, which is for teenagers on up to adults. And you can literally, a drop a day, if your doctor tells you you need more, two, three, four, five drops a day. And because it's a drop, it's easy. Before we move on to the other things that we can take, other supplements yes. that we can assist, my experience is this. like I, We've traveled uh, mm-hmm. with my son, who is anaphylactic. And if you go to Europe, for example, the concept of food allergies is almost alien to them. Yep. They, they don't have it. They don't have the prevalence. Yep. And they don't understand, obviously, the seriousness of anaphylaxis, which is the very serious allergic Definitely. reaction, which is, which is life-threatening. Suggesting to me that there's something environmental going on because, you know, it's more prevalent now and it's geographic. Now, I don't know. Have you read any studies which suggest that sort of correlation or? Yes, but they actually tie it to the social aspect of the introduction, late introduction. Okay. That concept that we live with in North America and have throughout my entire lifetime didn't exist in Europe. It didn't exist in Asia. It didn't even exist, for example, in Mexico. We have friends who live in Mexico who were, we were working with them in developing a product, mm-hmm. and we said to them, oh, well, you've got to remove the peanuts. Right. Why? Peanuts taste great. Yeah, it's exactly. like, well, we have a high percentage of people with allergies to peanuts. They couldn't understand. They thought I was joking. Right. No, I understand that. It's, okay. a, un- it's a uniquely Canadian and American thing for some reason. You were talking about vitamin D. Are there other... Are there types of supplements that people can take that might assist in helping with this? Definitely. But the first thing I want to say before I I go down that road is, please understand, everyone, there is no cure. Correct. Anyone who tells you there's a cure is trying to sell you something you don't want. There is no cure, period. What you can do is try and live with them and reduce the possibility of problems. Right. Now, scientifically... There is something that has a great deal of promise. Mm-hmm. It's a combination therapy using desensitization with immunotherapy. Okay. I would recommend anyone who's suffering from food allergies to talk to their physician and ask if they're a candidate and if they are, work with them on it. Right. But this is not something you can do on your own. It has to be medically supervised. Right. It and has I, to be. And I would say this. You know, if you have a loved one with a food allergy or if you have one yourself, you know that once once you have a reaction, particularly an anaphylactic one, oh, you're more susceptible to anaphylactic reactions and they get increasingly more problematic. Correct. So it's not something to monkey with. If you have a serious food allergy, you have to treat it as such and, and act accordingly. With professional help. Correct. With professional help. Now, what you can do to help avoid that from occurring. Yes is number one, increase your biome. Right. And by doing that, take probiotics. Okay. And take probiotics every day. Ideally, you want to do vegan organic ones, again, because they're the cleanest and less likely to have an allergen, Mm -hmm. including the big advantage to the vegan is no dairy. Right. And people have dairy allergies. Correct. So you're avoiding that one right off the bat. Excellent. What else might you take that would help? Well, we've already spoken about vitamin D. Yep. Another one is milk thistle. Okay, how does that work? Now, what milk thistle does, milk thistle helps your liver work. It's a herb that what it does is it helps improve your liver health and at the same time helps your liver function and your liver acts as your detox agent. Now, there is one caveat with this. And the caveat with this is if you suffer from ragweed allergies. Which I do, actually. Milk thistle is in the same family. So Uh you may experience a reaction. What you want to do is Test a small amount first, see if you experience a reaction. Some people with ragweed allergies do, some don't. But if you do, obviously don't take it. 
Okay, and uh, in your article, you also mentioned one last one, which is omega-3s. Correct. Omega-3 oils are highly anti-inflammatory, and they found that that helps with reduction of sensitivity to allergens. What you want to do, though, is make sure that the source of the omega-3 is compatible if you have allergies to some fish or shellfish products. If, for example, you have a shellfish allergy, obviously don't take krill oil. If you have a fish allergy, you can take a vegan version of omega-3, which is actually made from algae, which is more hypoallergenic. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. This really was a fascinating topic. You're going to come back next month, right? Always. Happy to. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMed Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer and mother of three kids, my next guest is also the tremendously popular cookbook reviewer for Tonic Magazine, my wife, Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. Hi. Always a great intro. I know. (laughs) I always have to change it up for you. I want to see your reaction when I make a change. So we have close to eight guest billion cookbooks in the house. More or less. More or less. The actual number, truthfully, is in excess of 100, which doesn't even include the ones that you've given away to friends and charity. But most people don't have that many. So the ones they should have should count just for space or for whatever reason. So you're here today to discuss the merits of some of the classics and to let us know about some of the other cookbooks that might be more modern or may offer more utility to cooks, right? Yeah. Okay, so the the biggie, the one that everybody thinks of when they think of of cooking is is what? Mastering the Art of French Cooking. But Julia Child. Exactly. That's my Julia Child imitation, by the way. (laughs) Well, there was the whole movie, the book in the movie, Julia and Julia, which was a true story based on somebody who decided to cook their way through the cookbook. Right. So what are your thoughts on Mastering the Art of French Cooking? Well... I have the book. It was my grandmother's. I love that I have it. But if I didn't have my grandmother's version, I wouldn't say that you should go and buy it. Like, I don't recall that we've actually ever cooked anything from it. Or if we have, it would have been years and years and years ago. I did a long time ago. Like, you know, when I was a teenager, we had it. And I think I used to make some things in it. But I don't 
I don't cook from it anymore. Why is that? I looked through it. I was I was going to write about it. I wanted to do my own sort of cooking through the book, and then none of the the recipes weren't that appealing to me. And it's partly because French isn't my favorite cuisine, and but it seemed a bit heavy. Or I thought, you know, I like the tweaks that are in the other cookbooks that I have. So it's not to say that it isn't good. And if you know, if you like it, keep it. But I just, well, it's a classic. I'm not sure you should rush out and buy it if you don't have it already. Okay. So another classic is the Silver Palette Cookbook. Tell us about this one. Well, that one came out in 1982. So it was, for a while, it was full 80s cookbook. And right. you know, it was very famous and everybody had that cookbook and kind of fell out of favor. But then I've noticed in some new cookbooks that have come out that they're you know, reimagining putting their new spin, not changing a lot, um, some of the yeah. famous recipes in the Silver Palette cookbook. For example, this chicken marbella recipe, which was, I think, the most famous of the recipes is a baked chicken with prunes and olives, which sounds weird, but apparently it's delicious. And I've seen it in two new cookbooks this year where they've said, you know, here's our version of this recipe. So, so what was the cuisine in the Silver Palette? Was it Nouvelle cuisine or what was yeah, it? Yeah, it was Nouvelle cuisine. I was starting, so in the 80s, we're starting to to have more availability of food from other parts of the world and both in restaurants and in grocery stores and a, I think a bigger appreciation of other cuisines and so that's reflected in the book. And I read this article recently which talked about you know why the Silver Palette cookbook is still relevant and the recipes are still good. And so, well, I actually got rid of mine in, <laughs> in a fit of purging recently. I'm sorry yeah. about that because I think it's still a good book. And so if you have that one, you know, keep it. Okay. So one that I know is still on the shelves, and we do refer to it from time to time, is The Joy of Cooking. Yeah, Joy of Cooking is a good, basic cookbook. So if you're young and learning how to cook, or you want a kind of an encyclopedic book of the covers, you know, A to Z, roasting chicken, cooking vegetables, baking bread, you know, it'll cover it. It's a procedural. So if you wanted to know how to make like a cream sauce, or if you wanted to make cheese sauce for macaroni and cheese, Mm -hmm. you could look it up quickly, and it would be a fairly straightforward. I, I remember I used to make pancakes and waffles from that cookbook. Very sort of straightforward, you know, make sense utilitarian recipes. Yeah, a lot of recipes too. Yeah. I mean that the first came out in 1931. The most recent update was in 1997. But the one I have I, I looked it up and it was 1975. So it's still like it's pretty old. Right. And useful. So that's a keeper too. Mhm. All right. So another one that I know we have on our shelves is Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking by Marcella Hazan. Yes, and that's only from 1992, but I think Italian cuisine is pretty classic. Right. They don't tend to... They don't monkey about. No, they don't. Classics are classics, and I love Italian food. And so if you want, you know, the basic tomato sauce, bolognese sauce, how to make pasta, that's a great cookbook to have. Still relevant today. Our version, though, is like a pocketbook, right? Uh, Like a soft cover version, which isn't necessarily easy to use in the kitchen. It doesn't like fold back. You can't keep the page open if you're if you're looking at it. So I don't know if they make a more. No, no, they do. Do they? Yes. Oh, we just have the we just have the pocketbook coffee. Yeah. So what about a vegetarian classic cookbook? Is there one out there? 
Yeah, there's a couple. So if you go back, Molly Katzen and the Moosewood cookbooks, those more than 40 years old. And I mean, there were a number of Moosewood cookbooks. And so those were the the old school vegetarian cookbooks, still good today. But if a slightly more modern take is Deborah Madison. So she came out with a book called Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. And then more recently, New Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. And those are Again, encyclopedic books. You know, if you have that book, you don't need other vegetarian books necessarily because it covers all the different vegetables with many different recipes, and they're all good. She's good. Okay. I guess with a cookbook like that and the joy of cooking, the question is, you know, like, are you comfortable, like, sifting through a cookbook that has literally hundreds of recipes, or do you want one that's more manageable where, you know, you're only accessing maybe 30 or 40? I don't know. I, I suppose it's personal taste. Another area that people tend to like to have a cookbook for is breakfast. Yes, and there's a book called The Breakfast Book by Marion Cunningham, which came out in 1987, and that's still good. I took it out because one of the cookbook authors and bloggers that I follow was talking about it. I'd seen it. I'd seen her name mentioned a few times, and so I decided to go to the source and look at the book, and it was still good. It was still relevant. I'm not saying you need to go and buy this book because I think you can get similar recipes in new books. But if you have it or if you're looking for an all-in breakfast book, it's still a good one. Okay. Are there authors that you would recommend to people that seem to you know, have good, well-conceived cookbooks? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think so. Deborah Madison I think is a good cookbook writer, you know, sort of a diva of vegetarian cooking. There's Mark Bittman, who has done a number of books and he's got one called how to cook everything which is a great basic so like the joy of cooking but perhaps more modern uh, good new basic cooking for a new cook i still love dory greenspan yes you have a soft spot for dory i do and her baking book it's called baking or baking chamois they're two different books those are really great fundamental baking books that I use more than any other book when I'm looking to bake something. Like I look there first and if I can't find it there, I go look in other places. Okay. And there, are there any other authors that you would recommend? Yeah. So Deb Perlman, her Smitten Kitchen. We love Deb. We love Deb. Smitten Kitchen. She has two books. They are, to your point before, they are more manageable. So they're just less recipes and different, you know, so they'll just, there'll be some pastas and some meats and some fishes, but and some desserts and some breakfast, but not too many. So it's just not as overwhelming. And her recipes tend to just be good. You know, they're doable and good. Okay. I also really like Melissa Clark, who is a writer for the New York Times. And she came out with a book in 2017 about dinner recipes. And we've made tons of recipes. Is that dinner changing the game? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, really good one. I use that, again, more than anything else, I think, right now for dinner recipes. Six Seasons, Mm -hmm. which I talked about uh, last month, great vegetable forward cookbook, one of my favorites lately. And then for breakfast, a more modern take on breakfast is Whole Grain Mornings, which is just about breakfast, but she uses different grains. So, you know, farro breakfast bowl or whole grain pancake mix, different flours, cornmeal, you know, peach crisp, that kind of thing. So I like using different flours and grains and it is a bit healthier and I think more interesting, more suited to modern tastes. And so I I really like that book. Okay. When you're looking at a cookbook, because I know like this is your thing, right? Like you like looking at cookbooks and dissecting them and you can sort of suss out, you know, just by sort of scanning it, 
whether this is going to be a good functional cookbook. What are the types of things that you look for in a cookbook that suggest to you that it's going to be functional? Well, there's a number of things. I mean, first, the fundamental thing is, do I think I want to eat it? Right. Of course. You know, no, but that's not, you know, it's not obvious because I look at a lot of cookbooks and I think, well, other people may like it, but it's just not appealing to me. I don't think I, if I don't want to eat it, I don't really want to cook it. I look at the ingredients, you know, are they hard to get? I look at how it's cooked. Is it deep fried? You know, I don't have a deep fryer. Is it, does it look very detailed? So I'm not going to touch it. I look at one thing that's a pet peeve of many people is if you look at the ingredients and then they included in this is a whole other uh, sub recipe that you have to go to another page and you didn't realize. Which tends to be, uh, there's a great cookbook, but it's notorious for it is the Jelena cookbook where, you know, it seems like it's a brief recipe. And then if you look closely, they'll send you to three different pages where you have to do like significant mise en place. And I'm sure all this stuff is ready for them at the restaurant. But if you're cooking at home, you know, a three-step or a four-step recipe that you're having to combine is is way too much work for one dish. Yeah. So reading through the recipe is always a good idea. I make this mistake frequently where I don't read it carefully enough. And then I found out that I was only supposed to add like half the cheese and I added all the cheese because I didn't read it closely. But, you know, so reading it through and seeing how doable it actually is, is important. And for me, I because I've looked at so many recipes, I have a sense of whether something is going to work or not. I'm not always right. Sometimes I think something's going to be wonderful and it isn't, but I have a sense of whether it works. Okay, great. Well, thank you for coming on the show this morning and sharing your expertise. We're going to hear back from you next month, right? That's right. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, she became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of a medical issue and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine to get to the bottom of it. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. So I went to a friend's cottage one weekend this summer and he asked me before what Naomi and I liked to eat for breakfast and not wanting to be an ungrateful guest, I mentioned one or two things. Right. But when I got to the cottage, I realized that most of the other guests were not eating any grains any starch, 
any bread, any dessert, or any dairy. All they were eating were just meat, vegetables, and fruit. And I realized all of a sudden that I was not nearly as specific (laughs) as I should have been enlisting my needs for the weekend. And I found myself eating meat and vegetables and fruit because they were on one of those fad diets. Okay. Yes. So I thought it would be interesting to bring you in to get your thoughts on them because you see people come to you all the time and I'm sure they're concerned about their weight. Yes. Uh, And I want to hear what you think about these diets and whether they work and whether they're healthy. Well, what you're describing sounds like maybe the keto diet or the paleolithic diet, which are similar and they have become incredibly popular recently. There is a little bit of a difference in that the keto diet is really based primarily on fat. Some people don't realize that. They think it's just low carb and no grains, which it is. But a true keto dieter is intaking about 70% of fat. So they're having, you know, full avocados, bacon, cheese as almost like a staple in the the base of what they're eating, right? Right. Paleo isn't based so much on fat. It's just based on essentially what our Paleolithic ancestors were thought to have eaten. Or what we imagine that they were eating because it's it's kind of nonsense that people think they know what people were eating rather than the Paleolithic. Sorry, Paleos. It may work for you, but it's it's based on ephemeral But not refined grains, essentially, right? They may have some sort of grain substance, but it wouldn't have been produced. Well, not at the cottage they didn't. Right. Well, they didn't. They got, they got us a loaf of bread. Okay. I don't want to seem ungracious, but like I was upset because <laughs> I didn't get my dessert. And let me tell everybody out there, I lost 52 pounds and I've kept it off for over 10 years. So That's I know, awesome. I know whereof I speak and I have never dieted. I actually don't believe in diets. Okay. Understandable. For me, diets... Using it as a short term, so where yeah. keto can come into play is someone that needs to lose a lot of weight. I mean, yeah. we're not talking 5, 10 pounds here. We're talking maybe 60, 70, 100 pounds, right. especially if they have other health problems like diabetes right. and they're being monitored by a healthcare professional, naturopathic right. doctor, medical doctor, and they're using it as a short term solution to help to regulate their insulin levels and get things on track. It's not, I don't see dieting as a long-term solution. I mean, how would someone just eat 70% fat for the rest of their life? Right. The social interaction aspect of it becomes difficult, right? Like if you're on a restricted diet, like how do you go to restaurants? How do you go to dinner parties? How do you deal with it? It's too hard to maintain in my view. It is. But if you're having it for a short term and you're using it almost like a medical intervention, right? Because food is medicine. Like a kickstart, As a kickstart. And I I do see food as medicine. So it's the same as someone that's eating very, very unhealthy. And you're saying, you know, we've really got to turn your your diet around. Even if we try something for a few months, we start introducing healthier things, maybe reducing the amount of sugar. And that's where, you know, when we're talking about diets, where a lot of people really need to modify their diets. Right is reducing sugar. I agree. And when I say I don't believe in diets, look, you're not going to lose weight unless you take in fewer calories than you are burning. And there's only so many calories you are capable of burning unless you're doing landscape work. So, you know, you're going to have to cut back, but there's a difference between changing your lifestyle to maintain a certain amount of intake, essentially for the rest of your life, as opposed to drastically cutting back or cutting out certain foods in the short run. That's how I make the distinction. Yeah. And, you know, the calories in, calories out, it does work. That is, you know, but there's a lot of other factors into weight loss, 
including no hormones, stress, you know, sleep, exercise, right. emotional wellness. There's, it's all there. I've had yeah. a lot of patients over the years who come to me. We're working on weight loss, and they actually start increasing their caloric intake, but doing other modifications in their lifestyle, and they right. end up losing weight. Right? Of, of course. Yeah. Sorry. So we we got off a little off topic. Other than keto and paleo, what yes. what else is hot right now? Well, low-fat diets is kind of out. That was what used to be, I know, growing up in high school. I remember all the girls talking about trying to cut out their fat and having their low-fat yogurt. We know now that was fat kind of was reduced but increased sugar, and that didn't help us at all. Intermittent fasting is also very popular right now. So my brother-in-law is doing that right now, and and candidly, anything under five years, in my view, is a short-run test. Yes. But he is getting results. Yeah. And a lot of people do get results. I, I'd say some people that don't get the results they want, thyroid patients, which there's a large population of people with hypothyroidism in Canada, it's about one in eight, they need enough carbohydrates in the day to maintain homeostasis or a balance of their hormones. When they intermittent fast, sometimes it changes thyroid function and it actually makes their metabolism go down. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. A lot of people don't. Or if they're on certain medications that need to be taken with food and so right. forth. But intermittent fasting absolutely has results. Well, let, let's explain to the listeners what yeah. is intermittent fasting. I mean, it is what it sounds like, but, but yeah. if you elaborate. So, It's basically not having anything to eat or drink aside from water. And depending on what resource you're consulting, some will say green tea or or black coffee is okay when Mm. you're fasting. But then you have a certain time period in the day where you eat. And there's variations of the intermittent fasting diet. So sometimes you don't eat all day. And maybe you eat a small meal at night. Some people just have a true fast all day long into the night. And other people, which I find more effective, is you still eat everything every day, but you have a very short time window when you're eating. Right. So my brother-in-law is doing that one. I I think he's got a four-hour window each day where he can eat. Yes. You know, some people just start with a seven-hour window. So, you know, you can modify it. What's the point of that? I mean, I can can eat for seven hours. That's a no-brainer. I don't don't think that's going to get me any further ahead. You never know. You never know because the science says that people that restrict their time when they eat, when you're not eating, you know, late at night, a lot of people are snackers. Oh, yeah. So if you're saying, okay, I'm a late night eater yeah. right here. Are you getting up at like 7 a.m. in the morning and you have seven hours to eat? That means no snacking at night, <sighs> which would probably have an impact. Yeah, right? it would for sure. Yeah. When I'm off the wagon, as it were, yeah. it's the late night snack. A lot of people are, Yeah, right? for sure. Right. Because you're watching TV and you know, it, the sad thing is I will eat to keep myself up. Yeah, right, because most I'll, people do. Because I'll fall asleep on the couch, yes. right? I'm, but I really have to watch the Monday night football game. And then, of course, I have to eat in order to do that. But but it seems counterintuitive, fasting, because every I thought, yes. being the layperson I am, yeah. that when you fast, you're actually slowing down your metabolism. So how could this fasting work to actually burn more calories. I don't quite understand So it's not a long-term fast because of the intermittent nature of it. From what's being seen so far, it's not actually turning on those genes that get turned on when people do long-term fasts or they have disordered eating where your body actually starts to conserve it wants to conserve energy and store right. fat. Yeah. Uh, this seems to work in the opposite way where, well, one, you're at, most people end up taking less calories overall. And depending on what resource you're looking at, it looks like giving your body a break might actually allow your digestion to work a little bit better. It seems to shift your hormonal balance as well. So again, people with abnormal insulin levels or diabetes seem to have benefit from this intermittent fasting because it benefits hormones as well, which is so important to weight loss. Are you 
you aware if, if this works in the long term? And by that, I mean, can people maintain this for years on end? So when I was back in the research world, we looked at intermittent fasting as different applications, as applications to improve neuronal health, so brain function, right. which had very positive benefits. And a lot of the researchers at that time, I mean, this was... 10 years ago, and even that that was kind of like a new type right. of thing to do. A lot of them had been doing it successfully for five, six, seven years. Again, because we haven't studied this for a long time, we don't know if it can be maintained over 20, 30 years. In theory, it could, but it's if one wishes to maintain that for that long. So right? what, what would you recommend to somebody who's really looking, I mean, I have my own ideas, but what would you recommend to somebody who wants to do weight loss as a lifestyle decision? I'd say one of the first things really is a lot of people talk about the the studies, long-term studies with the best long-term weight loss and keeping it off is even slight carbohydrate reductions. Sugars are carbohydrates. Right. So I'd say that's like number one. Most people have maybe addiction or likingness to sugar. And I'd say if you can reduce that, that's very helpful. The old stuff about just getting out more, exercising more, you know, walking. And that's twofold because when you're out of the house and walking, you're not eating at night. Right. And then, but you're also, unless you're holding a sandwich, but yeah, (laughs) you could be be. a bag of chips. Right. Yeah. Making sure you're eating just a healthy whole foods diet. So getting rid of the packaged foods, which sometimes contain sugar, focusing on a lot more vegetables. If you look at your plate and at least half of your plate for lunch and dinner and even ideally breakfast is veggies, that's going to take you a long way. Yeah. What veggies do you have for breakfast? I put often spinach and kale in my smoothies. If I'm having eggs, I almost always have it with veggies. Okay. Yeah. It's not going in my oatmeal. I'm just telling you that right now. (laughs) Well, it could be a little snack. It's true. It, it could, could be, but it isn't. Okay. But I hear you. Yeah. Okay. Especially the veggies that fill you up more, the brassica type vegetables, so kale, cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage. Yeah, cruciferous That's vegetables. Right. Yeah. Yes. Those are higher in fiber, so they make you feel fuller longer, and they're also very nutritious for you. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. What do you want to talk about next month? What are we going to talk about? We're just going to talk about, how about addictions? Do you want to do that? That sounds great. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. And now the soul segment with spiritual medium, transpersonal therapist and teacher, Lisa Marvin. Through her use of tarot cards, your questions about love, money, and career are sure to be answered. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this week's Soul Segment. Today, we'll be focusing on ways to gain more fulfillment in your life. The way this works is that I've pulled three cards to get a glimpse as to what to expect for the week. The first card is the energy that has brought you to where you are now. The second card is what you need to focus on right now. And the third card is the energy that's going to carry you into the future. The first card that we're going to look at is the Knight of Pentacles. This means that you've been able to decide what it is you want in your life and what you need to do to get it. The next card you have is the Eight of Pentacles. This means that this week you have to work hard at mastering whatever it is you want to do to bring more fulfillment into your life. Once you do that, you have the King of Wands. This means that you'll feel more creative and confident in going after your personal successes. This is a great week to connect with what really brings fulfillment and joy into your life. Good luck. Thanks for joining me, and I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. This has been The Soul Segment with Lisa Marvin. To contact Lisa with your questions, 
please visit metaphysique.ca. At Agmedica, we all feel fortunate to be living in this great country and investing our time, efforts, resources, and passion in something that's making and will continue to make an enormous impact on people's well-being, their health care options, as well as the trusted availability of a safe and consistent medical cannabis product right from the start. That's the patient promise we make to all of our customers. At Agmedica, we also understand the treatment journey and the thought that goes into trying something new. Who are we? We are continuous learners, always looking to surpass boundaries and deliver a positive experience for the great people we serve across all diverse communities. Acknowledging the past and embracing the future. Come join Agmedica as the journey continues. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Our next guest, Kathleen Trotter, is a fitness expert, nutritionist, life coach, monthly guest on BT Montreal and Rogers Ottawa, and author of the book, Finding Your Fit. And congratulations, the new Your Fittest Future Self, which is out this month. It is. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. And, you know, I'm laughing only because I feel like I have two books and, and they're like my children. My, my mom yeah. and I always joke, my mom really wants grandchildren. And I keep saying, mom, you got two books. That's what you get. She can walk around and tell all her friends exactly. about, about your the books, books. As, opposed to, as opposed to the exactly. grandkids. Exactly. No, because it does sort of feel like a little bit like I spent nine months like creating it. It takes, it's a lot of work. It's fun. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway. But I think the best part about the books is they sort of journal my process mm-hmm. from a really unfit and unhealthy teenager to who I am now. And if anybody gets anything from listening to me, it's that becoming a fitter future self is possible. 100%. Um, I think that when you are somebody who doesn't get joy from exercise and feels a lot of shame about their body and being inactive and have tried a million different quote-unquote diets, it feels so overwhelming and it feels like a fitter future you is this mirage that you'll never get to. And I've been there. Like, I honestly, I spent so many years of my life, you know, crying to get out of gym class and never exercising and hating anything active and I snuck food from my mom like I literally would walk home from school eating food and then I had a toothbrush that I would use like sort of a block from home so then I didn't smell like bad food right like get rid of the evidence yeah and I spent all my babysitting money on food and it just it made me feel really unenergetic unhappy and I never thought it was possible to feel different, to be different. And that was 20 years ago. And the journey, you know, I'm still working on at it. Like that, that's something I've learned. Like it's not, it's not an end date that you get to and you're like, oh, now I'm healthy and now I'm happy and that's it. Like I work at this every day. I wake up every single morning being like, okay, what are the ways that I can be fit? What can I learn? What, how can I grow? And not in a like, oh, I have to learn today, but in a sort of energetic, like this is exciting. It's my life. I get to create. I get to create it really. Yeah. I, you know, I had a tipping point. I was very unhealthy. Um, I can't imagine you as unhealthy. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine you as unhealthy. <laughs> there you go. So, okay. but, but my epiphany came much later in life. I was in my late 30s uh, when I changed my life. Uh, because I was obese and whereas I 
did things from time to time. Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't active. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the old, you have kids, you end yeah. up eating off their plate, or you just don't have the energy after you're taking them around to take care of yourself. Yeah, and life gets busy. Yeah, and, you know, I was practicing litigation, which is very time-consuming, and, and I let everything go. Because there's only so many balls you can have in yeah. the air at, at one time. But You can't prioritize everything, or you prioritize nothing. Right, but I found myself in a place where I didn't like the way I was, and I had to make a change. And I guess my message is... Our listeners, at some point, if they're feeling that way, will reach a point where enough is enough. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a good point because then everything's laid out in front of you mm-hmm. and there's the potential future you mm-hmm. uh, that you can work towards. And it is work and it's not something that's going to happen overnight. You let yourself go. I'm sure it didn't happen in three exactly. weeks. So you it ain't going to be fixed. Yeah. You didn't get all your unhealthy habits in one day, so you're not going right. to get all your new healthy so habits in a day. For all of you who have made New Year's resolutions that you're going to fix things, please don't be the person who gives up on the gym at the end of January because I've seen those people. If you're going to do the resolution thing, which I'm actually not in favor of, but if you make that decision, recognize that really you're changing everything in your life and it's going to take a long time. So take your time with it and figure out what's going to work for you Mm -hmm. and get going. So let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the things that you've learned that are in your book and and like what, what would be the... If you're going to explain your book, your new one to people, your, what's your elevator pitch? What would you My say? elevator pitch okay. is that you have to create a unique strategy that works for you and that there's sort of three tiers. You have to have your workout mix, yep. you have to have your nutrition mix, and you have to have your mindset mix. Yep. And you know, we all sort of know what healthy food and exercise is and that it's good and that we should be doing it, but connecting the dots between wanting and, to, and doing is the tricky part. And that's where that healthy mindset comes in. So it's, you know, there's pros and cons to every single workout out there. There's pros and cons to every single diet out there. And there's pros and cons to every motivational mindset uh, strategy out there. But it's about figuring out the pros that work for you and your unique reality and creating a mix that works for you. So I call it the you mix. And it includes your workout mix, your nutrition mix, and your mindset mix. And throughout the book, I take you through how to do that. So there is, you know, three chapters on different workouts and I break down the pros and the cons and then there's three chapters on different nutrition approaches and I break down the pros and the cons and then there's different you know motivational mindset approaches and I break down those pros and cons and at the end you have the skills and the tools to say okay well these pros work for me these cons don't I'm going to leave that Um, and this is the mix that for now anyway is what I'm going to go with but I think if I was going to say the one thing I'd love everybody to get is that every opportunity is an opportunity for growth and reflection. And what I mean by that is I think often people come to this idea of, okay, I need to create a fitter future self. And they're really overwhelmed and discouraged by their past 10, 20, 30, 40 years of quote unquote failing. And I put failures in quotes because if you can look at those experiences as opportunities for learning, then they become kind of exciting. It's about putting the puzzle pieces together. So if you can look back at your past 20 years and say, okay, well, I was the most successful when... I joined a sports team because I really like being active with others when I took a cooking course or when I, you know, made really healthy food for dinner and took that for lunch the next day or when I had a gym buddy or whatever those things are and say, okay, well, those obviously really worked for me. And then I can look back at the times and be like, okay, well, I fell off my horse when 
I had too much of a perfectionist model, or I decided to be too rigid with my eating, or I relied too heavily on my workout buddy. So then when they decided not to go to the gym, I decided not to go. Like whatever those are. Right. And then you say, okay, I'm not going to do what I, those negatives, and I am going to learn from the positives. And then you, you say, working is winning. So I try those things. And if they don't work, then I learn from that. And then, you know, you keep that process of trying something, analyzing what you did, trying again and sort of just embracing that the only failure is not trying. Like, you just have to wake up every day and be like, okay, today's the day that I try again. Yeah, I think those sound like what I would call macro tools. I think you also have to be armed with micro tools too because from my perspective, it was about setting myself up for success, understanding that I had to make the workouts as accessible as totally. possible. Right? So, I, so, yeah. so, like, I was still practicing law at the time, which meant... I needed to get to a gym and back to my office quickly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went, I managed to get a membership at a, uh, there was a hotel beside the office building where I worked and they had a very small gym. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a fancy gym. It was just like what you would imagine if you were traveling, you know, one of those small hotel gyms, but it was right next door. Absolutely. And they had shower facilities. Yeah. So what that meant was I could go and in relative privacy, get my exercise in. And that was the first step. I completely agree because you need consistency and for consistency, you need it to be convenient. So that's definitely something I talk to my clients about, about figuring out how you can be consistent and knowing that you have to meet yourself where you are. So if right now you are too embarrassed to go to the gym or you can't afford a gym or it's too much out of your time, like you're really busy with work, then maybe you work out at home and you do that for the next month or two months. And then when you feel you have more time or you have more money or you feel better about going into a space with others, then maybe you go to the gym or you then decide to join a sports team. So it's you figure out what works for you now. So you get rid of this idea of like, well, this is the best workout is running or the best workout workout is, you know, going to the gym or it doesn't matter what the best is if you can't actually do it. It doesn't matter what you do once a month. It matters what you do on sort of a daily, weekly basis. And that's where that consistency and the convenience and knowing who you are and what you will actually do versus like your aspirations, right? You want to get away from what I call fitness wishes and get to fitness goals. Like, and goals are knowing like who you are, what you will do, what you want to do, what your version of fit looks like. What are your genetics? What are your realities, right? But even amongst the process, like, you know, particularly if you've let yourself go, if you've got a big task ahead of you, like, for example, I I lost 50 pounds, right? That's awesome. That takes a year. Yeah. So, or more. Or more. It took me a year. So, within the span of that, you have to realize you can't just be excited about the goal, whatever it is. Yeah. You have, you, you have to be able to enjoy the process. Now, I agree. Now, for a lot of people, eating healthy and exercising is not fun. Well, you're going to have to figure out a way yeah. to make it so that it isn't drudgery. Absolutely. Because if you're only perceiving it as a means to your goal, yeah. I guarantee you, you You'll will stop. fail. Absolutely. So you yeah. better find an activity yeah. you like doing. For sure. Or somebody you like doing it with. Right. So let's say you hate exercise, but you love your puppy dog. Go for a walk with your dog, yeah. right? Or you have a, you know, a best friend that you like to meet for once a week for a coffee. Instead of getting the coffee, Coffee, take the coffee and go for a walk, right? Like pair things that you don't love, like exercise with somebody or something that you do enjoy, right? I love listening to my podcast. Like the daily podcast in the morning is one of the things that gets me out of bed, the New York Times Daily. So I go for a run and I get to listen to that podcast. And it, you know, it ex- sort of excites me to go for the run. So it's, right. you know, it's all about finding what works for you. And finding the healthy food, for example, that you can tolerate Absolutely. eating. Because, because if you're perceiving it as a diet, it's yes. food that you don't don't like, you will not eat properly. You'll, you'll end up 
not enjoying the process yeah. so much so you won't do it. Yeah. That you will not yeah. do it. You got to thrive in your own lane. Stop comparing, you know, what your mother, your father, your favorite celebrity does for their health and do you be you and find your solutions. The only non-negotiable is that you are active and how you do that is up to you. Fantastic advice. Thank you for coming yeah, in today. Yeah, my pleasure as always. And thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Joel Thuna and Naomi Bussin, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss the efficacy and safety of herbal remedies, how to sneak vegetables into your diet, mindfulness and being effective, and extreme restaurant food trends. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.